This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight, my guest is Jean Vermet, and we're going to be talking about gender transition and sexual reassignment surgery. This is the last in a two-month series on transgender issues. Jean is a Maine native. She was educated in the Skowhegan School System and the Coburn Classical Institute in Waterville. She also studied to become a paralegal at Beale College in Bangor. Jean self-employed, and she's the author of a book about sexual reassignment surgery called Je Me Souviens. She's the founding director of the Maine Gender Resource and Support Service. Welcome to Safe Space, Jean. Thank you for inviting me. I'd love to ask you if you could begin by um, telling me a little bit about sort of the early years of how you how you became aware that you did not identify w- with the male body that you were in. Um, boy, that's a little difficult because I don't think there was really a process of becoming aware of it. It's I, I first cross-dressed, cross-expressed when I was three years old. And that was, I, I distinctly remember that one incident and, and starting that whole thing. Um, Why don't you tell me that one incident? Sure. I was, uh, it was myself and my mother and father um, in the apartment we were in at the time, and I believe my next oldest sibling had been born. And my father was off to work, as dads usually are during the day, and my mother and my little brother were outside, and I went up into my parents' room and went into my uh, mother's dresser and pulled out a slip, I believe it was, and uh, put it on and stood in front of the mirror there in the in the bedroom and just sort of looked and just sort of looked and it was like, yeah, well, this this is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, it was very strange because it, it seemed perfectly natural to me and something that... Um, I was expected to do, or what I thought that that I should be doing, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I also understood that even at the age of three, that um, for me, as someone that they called a boy, to be doing that was something that was not going to be appreciated, and and that was not something I was putting into words. It was just something I I just had this sense of, even at that age. So even that first experience of of cross-expressing, cross-dressing, was done very secretly. Uh, and I just kept it that way for many, many years. But uh, for that whole time, while I was growing up and in my younger years and through adolescence and everything, my my sense of self was always one of a feminine person, even though I put forth a very, uh, not a very masculine, but <laughs> a mostly masculine persona for people to see because that's what I thought they expected me to do, but it wasn't what I thought of for myself. And so I was one of those people, and once adolescence came along, that I had tons and tons of girl friends, but no girlfriends. <laughs> and um, the, the girls had no problem being friends with me and telling me all the all the kind of girly things that that girls talk about and everything. But if it came time to think of me as a boyfriend of some kind. There was there just seemed to be a sense among them that well that wasn't quite where they should go with me <laughs> because I wasn't quite that and, and so they sensed it too in a way I believe they did nobody said anything you know but my my friendships my closest friendships were always with girls and it was more like a girl girl friendship 
um, all through you know middle school and, and high school and all of that. Um, and I just had a very difficult time forming any kind of um, sexual relationships with women because they never looked at me, I guess, as boyfriend material. They looked at me as girlfriend material on some level, if you know what I mean. Yes, and, and when do you think you put that together and realized what, what was going on? Oh, I, I mean, I knew there was something different about me, you know, even at the age of three right. you know, when, I, when I did that. And I think by the time I was 13, I had managed to get enough words uh, and enough knowledge from my surroundings to understand um, what I was or, or what I thought I was. Um, but there was, there was, I, I had no way of knowing how to deal with it because there were no um, resources available at the time. This was back in the early 60s. One of the things that really struck me about your book was when you said that one of the consequences of keeping it a secret was that the fears you had uh, could not be comforted, which really, this was very poignant. I wondered if you could say more about that. Um, well, you know, I, I just sort of stayed in the closet with this whole thing until I was 38 years old, and I never really told anybody. Uh, and the, one of the reasons I never told anybody was because I was afraid that was going to be the one thing that someone wouldn't be able to accept. And it was very strange because my, fam- my family is a large family. You know, Roman Catholic, we had six, six siblings. Um, we grew up in the 60s when all of that angst and political and turmoil and the sexual revolution and all of that was going on. And, you know, and there was drug use <laughs> and alcohol use and suicide attempts among my siblings and all of that. Um, and yet through all of that, my parents remained very loving to everyone and they were very supportive of everyone, and they cared very deeply about everyone, and they gave me no reason to think that they would not be equally loving and caring to me, and yet I always feared that that was going to be the one thing that they wouldn't be able to handle. And so I, I just never told them. I never told anybody. So what... And because nobody was ever told, I really had nobody that I could share it with, and so if I had difficulties, I had no one that I could lean on. And does it feel like in some ways that that allowed your fears to almost to, to multiply because they didn't have that kind of reality check of someone actually accepting you? Um, I suppose so. I mean, it wasn't something that kept, that kept multiplying um, exponentially or that no. kept you know, multiplying every single year, but they, they certainly grew strong enough to, to have a hold on me. Yes. And I, I guess I would say there was some sort of plateau, you know, maybe I reached in my 20s or something where I didn't become more fearful, but it didn't become any less. So what was it at 38, Jean? What happened that, that enabled you to, to sum up your courage? You know, it was a very strange thing. Um, during all of those years when I, I was keeping it a secret, um, you know, I knew I had words for what I thought I was and felt I was, you know, I... I really felt I was transsexual. I really understood what that meant, and I really wanted to have um, surgery. But at the same time, I was a very spiritual person. I'd been raised in a, in a Catholic family, in a spiritual family, and I was very spiritual myself, although not in a typically Christian you know, sort of way. Um, but I had this thought, that, well, this is what I want to do, but the question is, should I do it? 
are can I do, not not even can I do it, but should I do it? Are there going to be um, ramifications to this for me spiritually if I do this? And so I said, well, since I don't have the answer, I'll just wait until I have the answer before I make a decision. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I waited for like 25 years or 20 years, whatever it was. And then one day I was working. Uh, I'm an electrician by trade. And I was working at some job, and I was just minding my own business, and this thought just popped into my head. It said, okay, now it's time to look at that. And I said, huh, what? (laughs) And I said, yeah, now it's time to start looking at that. And I said, well, okay, that's the word, time to start. So I did. And I began by investigating, um, you know, what the process would be, um, whether it was something I needed to look at, you know, further, uh, how I would go about do it and so doing it and so forth and so on, and that sort of started that whole um, thing for me. And from that moment of okay, this is the time to start looking at it. How long was it before you made the step to go on hormones? Um, well, I think I started looking at it when I was about thirty-two. Thirty-two or thirty-three, so I really sort of began the process and the willingness to look at it. Before I wanted to look at it, but I didn't allow myself to. Mm. Um, and after that, it was like, okay, I want to look at it, and I am going to allow myself to. Um, maybe thirty-five, I started, you know, really sort of taking a close look at it and starting to uh, find support groups and information and, and just learn more about it. And then I didn't go on to hormones until I was um, oh, 42, I think. So it was another five, six years maybe. Mm-hmm. So you really were so intentional about thinking this through, checking it out, being, you know, noticing your own feelings, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. It was a very intentional process. Where, where in that time did you actually tell your parents and how did that go? Um, well, I told my, I had been married, actually, I was married when I, when this thought came to me that I should start looking at it, um, and I mentioned it to my wife, um, and she was, I, I had sort of mentioned to her before that I had been a cross-dresser in the past, that's how I worded it, because I couldn't use the word transsexual, because at that point I hadn't even identified that with myself yet. Um, so I couldn't really sort of identify it with her or, or tell her that because I wasn't willing to own it yet. Um, but when I told her that, she was sort of, you know, hesitantly supportive and and uh, was willing to to not walk out on me. <laughs> but she really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then shortly after that, about six months after that, um, she had a traumatic experience in her life. One of her sisters was killed in an automobile accident. And she had never been particularly um, spiritual or religious before then, but after her sister was died, she became more spiritual. And she was trying to find, you know, the answers. Why do bad things happen to good people and all of this? And uh, to find those answers, she turned to a, a fundamentalist Christian sect <laughs> who had all the answers, um, not only about her sister, but also about me. And it was maybe a year after that, I, she finally decided, you know, well, this is just 
too too much of a spiritual endangerment for me. And uh, you know, if you want to stop, I'll try to help you stop. But otherwise, you know, I, I'm not going to hang around. And until that time, I had told her that as long as we were working on this together, and as long as you were here, I would choose not to make step any further steps, even though I wanted to. And and I kept good on that promise, even though it was very difficult. But after she left, it was I, I was sort of free to go. Well. You know, she's not here. I fulfilled my side of the promise. Uh, now I'm free to look at it if I if I want to, and I want to. So I, one of the things I had done was send a letter, basically, to all of my family, and told them, well, this is what's going on. This is what I'm looking at. I don't really know where it's going to go. I mean, I know where I think it's going to go, but uh, I'm not going to guarantee that. Um, I still love you. I hope you love me. I tried to answer as many of their questions as, as I thought they might have. You know, does this mean I'm gay? No, I'm not gay. Does this mean that, you know, that I'm going to have a sex change? Well, I don't know yet. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and I sent the letter out because I didn't want to stand in front of them and say, well, this is what's going on. What do you think? Right. <laughs> I wanted them to have the chance to think about it yeah. before they responded. Yeah. Uh, and once the responses started coming in, they were all very supportive and loving, and I feel very blessed about that because that is not the case, you know, in, in many, many instances when people come out to their families, not just transgender people, but even gay and lesbian people. Um, One of the poignant so. parts for me in, in your book was when you describe a letter from your sister Mary mm-hmm. where she acknowledges, you know, sort of on the eve practically of your surgery, she acknowledges that she she is grieving the loss of the brother that she loved, even as she welcomes the new sister. And, mm-hmm. um, I was so struck at her honesty and her true embrace of the process with you. And um, it's remarkable. I, you know, it, you're, uh, sadly, your experience is not is not necessarily the norm. Um, do you think that that was part of what enabled you to go ahead with the surgery? Um, no to be honest with you, because um, one of the things that, that transsexuals always have to to be willing to face, you know, when they decide to pursue surgery and to pursue, decide to pursue these, these irreversible physical changes to themselves is the possibility that they're going to lose things, um, you know, people, friends, jobs, um, whatever. Uh, and most people lose something. Uh, and if you're very unlucky or you or you plan very poorly or you move too fast to allow the people around you to acclimatize with the changes, then you can lose a lot. Um, but in my case, uh, I lost very little. A, a few friends and a few clients, basically, is what I lost. Um, but I had made the decision beforehand that, you know, uh, this is going to happen. Uh, I'm going to do that whether my family is with me or not. And I just hoped that they would be. And thankfully they were. One of the things that, that I've learned in doing this series, Gene, is that tr- the word transition you know, means something very different for very different people. Mm-hmm. And that by no means everyone decides to, to pursue actual sexual reassignment surgery. That's correct. Partly because of finances and you know, for all kinds of reasons. And I'm curious, how did you know that it was right for you? <laughs> um, 
to be absolutely honest with you, uh, I, it was a sense, it was a feeling. Um, with, with each step I took, I, I wasn't going very fast. I was going very slowly throughout my whole transition. Um, other people, the, the average time it takes to do a, a physical transition, um, including surgery, averages you know three to five years. I think I took like seven, so I was a little longer with it, and I just, and with every step, I just sort of stopped and looked around and said, well, can I be happy here? Uh, and if I couldn't, then I took another step and stopped and said, well, can I be happy here? <laughs> and, I, and it just was slow steps, and I was just checking each, each step I took to see whether this was enough, and even right up until surgery, I gave myself permission. I said, look, you can change your mind right up until the time you go to sleep <laughs> and they wheel you into the operating room. And you're free to do that. And I told myself, and I'm not going to feel bad if I do, um, but as it happens, I didn't. Hmm. But I did give myself permission to change my mind right up to the last second. Uh-huh. So I wonder, you know, part of what felt like such a resource in your book is that you give a very, very detailed description of what the surgery actually involved and we don't have time to get into that level of detail now, but I wondered if you could give sort of a concise version of what actually happened to you. A concise version of the... Of the Not of the book itself, but just of surgical. the surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it is um, a reconstructive surgery. Um, there are a number of different options that different doctors use. Uh, the doctor who I chose had a particular technique, um, which he call, which is called, which is used by many of the of the surgeons who are doing this. Um, it's called the penile inversion technique, and I guess the the easiest way to visualize it is sort of say if you hold up a sock um, by its rim, and you think of that as being an Audi, and then you take your hand and insert, insert it into the sock and turn it inside out. What you've done is you've taken an Audi and made an Innie. And that's kind of what the surgeon does. And there's a lot of other stuff that goes with it. But essentially, the, the penis is turned inside out and inserted into uh, the body cavity, and that becomes the neo-vagina. And there's a lot of other you know, reconstructive stuff that goes on to produce uh, the labia and, and the clitoris and, and all of that. But that's sort of it in a nutshell. And you describe this really rather intensive process of needing to keep that neo-vagina stretched open and, you know, keeping yourself free of infection. And it really was a very intensive recovery process involving a fair amount of pain. And, um, you know, how long was it before you really were pain-free after that process? Um, well, probably three to four months. I would think, before I could actually sit down with ease on a chair and not be tender about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a very long process. Uh, and initially, after the surgery, you know, I was doing, we were doing um, medical maintenance, I guess you would call it, you know, as much as four to six hours a day. Uh, so it wasn't something that really sort of lent itself to heavy physical activity or, or even getting back into work, you know, very quickly. That was really striking to me about how much time it required to really recover and take care of yourself uh-huh. so that you he- healed well. So, you know, as you know, Jean, I'm a psychiatrist, and, of course, in my training, you know, we studied Freud, and such a key part of Freud's theory is, you know, 
what do they call castration anxiety or the fear in boys of you know someone cutting their penis off and mm-hmm. so I'm sure you know people people are in some ways have a kind of a fascination about who would choose this voluntarily and um, you know at times did you did you question yourself and think you know am I crazy why would I want to do this um, did you have moments of real self doubt um, no not about that ever. You know, I, I knew I I disliked my penis. I knew I wanted it gone. Um, and this is not to say that that it, it didn't give me pleasure over years, which is kind of a strange thing. You know, when when people are handicapped in some way, let's say someone is a normal average person and then ends up in a wheelchair. You know, that doesn't mean that they can't still enjoy. Um, their sexuality. It just means that they have to joy, enjoy it differently and they have to use what they have available you know, to, to be who they are kind of thing. And that's the way I always kind of saw it in my mind. You know, Part of me absolutely didn't like my penis <laughs> and wanted it gone. But at the same time, there was this, uh, uh, an actual sexuality uh, as a human being, which couldn't be denied. And the penis was how how, you know, sexual pleasure was gotten in that case. And for women, it's different because women don't have a penis. So in, in some respects, I was, it was a very, um, schizophrenic is not the right word, but it was very dual kind of identity going on there because there was part of me that, that was driven in, in some ways almost by, um, by raging hormones, <laughs> Which, which really bothered me <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to, to have a sexual expression. And there was another part of me who was going, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It's like, what is, you know, why are you so interested? Forget that, you know. And when I first started on hormones, um, within a few days, the first thing to go was um, spontaneous erections. And I was like, oh, yes, thank God, they're finally gone. <laughs> because it's like... They were there when they would happen, and every time they would happen, it would be like, oh, please, go away. Don't bother me. You know, this is not what I want. This is not who I am. So there was this uh, very sort of uh, dual uh, struggle going on, you know, between what what the body actually is and what the inner spirit and, and psychology um, perceives or wants. That captures in some, that's almost a metaphor for the whole thing, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you write about this a little bit, but I know that people will want to know, um, do you, you know, having had your genitals cut, do you experience pleasure now? Oh, yes. The plumbing works and so does the electricity. <laughs> um, now, to be honest with you, that is not necessarily the case with everyone. And when the doc- before the doctors do this surgery, there's a whole four or five pages of releases that you sign. And, um, and in those, among those releases is something that says, you know, you know I'm going to do my best job, but I can't guarantee that you're going to have sexual sensation. So we, I imagine you were very relieved. That I, that I did have it? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can imagine some considerable anxiety about it. Yeah, but even if I hadn't, even if it hadn't happened, you know, I, I still would have been absolutely thrilled with the new body because 
for the first time in my life, you know, I could look in the mirror and it was, and it was what I expected to see instead of something else. And it just made me feel so whole and made me feel so complete and made me feel like the person I'd always thought that I was. It was like, you know, it was, it was, it was just great. <laughs> mm. uh, I want to I ask you of something that feels very connected to that idea of wholeness. You write about, you know, it's clear that, that your sense of spirituality has been an important part of your of who you are all your life and yeah. also this process and you write about kind of the the universal spiritual story of death and rebirth and i'm struck since we just celebrated easter or some people did mm-hmm. um you know that that sexual reassignment surgery you use that as a metaphor of of death and rebirth and i'm curious did it feel like a death of sorts and has it really been a rebirth uh it did feel like a death of sorts uh, especially, and I chatted with my roommate in surgery as well, because we had many long hours together um, to and many opportunities to chat. And I think for most transsexual people, in other words, those transgendered people who feel the need to pursue uh, reassignment surgery, that those who are, I have found in my experience anyway, is that those who most successfully are able to complete that transition um, uh, psychologically and emotionally and everything else are those who have a deep spiritual sense. And those folks who, underst- who, who do have that deep spiritual sense, almost invariably, I have, I have found anyway, do have this sense that part of you is dying or some of you is dying or some... Ex- some expression of you or some aspect of you is dying for the possibility of a, a rebirth or a new birth of a of a new person or a different person or um, uh, a metamorphos a metamorphosizing you know from from one into another um, and that idea of, of the the bud must die for the for the flower to blossom is something that I think many people. Uh, either actually voice or instinctively feel. Yes. Hmm. I'm going to switch gears now, Jean, although I so appreciate you speaking about that, just because we have very little time left, and I want to use the last few minutes of our conversation to talk about something that's very immediate here in Maine, which is a sort of advocacy issue for transgendered folks. I know that um, LD1046, there's currently in committee in Maine debating about certain civil rights protections for transgendered kids in schools. And I wondered if you could just explain a little bit about the law and what's at stake here. Well, the present law um, provides several protections for many classes of people on, you know, the basis in public accommodations in the areas of, of, you know, age and race and religion and so forth. And five or six years ago also was changed to include sexual orientation. And sexual orientation includes within that definition um, either actual or perceived gender identity. So under the present law, um, transgendered people are, are provided the same level of protection and the same rights to access to public accommodations um, without discrimination that everyone else is. 
what LD 1046 says is that it is it would not be illegal for someone to discriminate on the basis of gender identity in the areas of um, traditionally sex segregated areas like uh, bathrooms and locker rooms and such. When you so say it wouldn't words, be, it would be perf- I'm sorry. Go ahead. So in other words, if the law passed, it would be perfectly okay for um, a restaurant owner to say to a transsexual woman, uh, if he knew that she was transsexual, I'm sorry, but you know you were born male, so I expect you to use the men's room. Um, and to say to a trans transgender man um, who may be have a bald head and a heavy beard and a low voice and no breasts, I'm sorry, but you know you were born female, so I expect you to use the women's room. And that would not, under this proposed new law, would not be discriminatory. I see. So the, and so what essentially what this LD 1046 does is it lifts the protections that are, in fact, in place already. Yes. Yes. So we are going to have to stop, Jean, but I, wanna, I know that you have an interest, as do I, in inviting people to contact the representative to express concern about lifting these civil rights protections as they uh-huh. exist. Jean, I need to thank you so much for being my guest and for your courage in speaking out um, 